we say, good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's see, there was a few that's just now come in. We've we got to make that more robust. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Sounded better. You know, when I look out there today and I see the sunshine, isn't that great? Boy, you know what? We had like a week of nothing but gray, cloudy skies. Not complaining, because I've been in Exodus and I've been understanding what complaining means, so I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, isn't it great sometimes to see the sunshine just burst out and it's all fresh and new again and, and, and you feel awake, right? I'm saying that to keep us awake. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous day and I thank the Lord for it. And I tie that in with what we're dealing with in this message because after reading about the trials, after reading about all the complaints and the battle that they just finished, the Israelites did, in the wilderness, we now move into a chapter that shows a little relief for them. It's like sunshine coming out after nothing but gray, cloudy days and rain, and which we need. But also, we, uh, we need release sometimes, and that's what's happening in this chapter. So I'm not preaching the same message that I've been preaching for the last three weeks, okay? <laughs> you probably were wondering, this sounds like last week's message. And then the week before, as they went through the thirst and the hunger, and then the thirst, and then the battle. Well, is that four weeks in a row, right? Well, we see here what it's kind of like in a normal way of life. And you know, I put normal in quotes there. <laughs> But at least a little while, we see, we see a break and the sunshine comes out. Sometimes you, you like to have it for a long time and sometimes it can be. But it, this comes a, a, a place for family, fellowship, and daily business in, in this chapter. Life goes on here. Everyday living really isn't always trials. It isn't always testing and it isn't always battles. We, uh, we get the sunshine. So, and it may seem like that sometimes. It seems like we're always in a battle, or it seems like we're always in uh, situations that are trials, but uh, it seems like we remember those things more often than whenever we have just relief and downtime, you know? We forget about the, the good times, and uh, they're all good, but the Lord has different ways of, of bringing those to us. Charles Spurgeon said this, that God's people are prone to engrave their trials in marble and write their blessings in the sand. Did you catch that? Sometimes we, we keep them in marble and, and that we just keep them forever remembered. And the blessings we write down and boom, then they're forgotten. And, uh, boy, the blessings that He gives us just constantly. That's the way to look at it, isn't it? Well, we've been seeing so much complaining about the lack of water and food. It's like a broken record, like I I was saying. It almost seems so repetitious, but so goes the human nature. When man doesn't get what he wants, when he wants it, he grumbles, he moans, he complains. And God is teaching the Israelites about who he was. So he gave them test, severe test, because they needed to know who he was. And then he faithfully provided for them even when they failed. They're babies. They don't know God. God is very gracious and very merciful for a long time. We have certainly seen His mercy and grace in all these previous chapters throughout the book of Exodus, haven't we? Just constantly. And what we get today is a demonstration of praise and worship. For that is the best thing that we can possibly do on this earth and for eternity. Because that is what life is about. Giving praise and worship to God in a way that is free. You know, we give praise and worship to God sometimes when we don't really feel like it, but we're supposed to anyway, so we do. But whenever God's people get together, they have something in common. Isn't it the sunum bonum of the week? Isn't it the elite? Isn't this what you look forward to the most of all the week? What a change of pace this chapter is. It's a transition now that's taking place in Exodus. We saw the plagues, and we saw the crossing of the Red Sea. Then we saw the tests. About. Not that we're not going to have any more of those, but now we're going to feature 
in the next chapter, after this chapter day, Mount Sinai, and the giving of the law, and the tabernacle. This is a transition that will take us there. Praising so much better than complaining. So, if we would have stayed at home today, and we wouldn't be praising God there, chances are we'd probably find something to complain about. Aren't you glad that you have something to praise about? <laughs> we always do, don't we? Okay, the, tw- the first 12 verses, and this is how you praise God. The first 12 verses are going to look back at what God has done. What He's done already. Great things. That's reason to praise God, isn't it? Then the last 15 verses are going to highlight Moses and his father-in-law in just everyday living. And his father-in-law actually gives him great wisdom and counsel, advice, on how he was to delegate his authority to others. So it's looking forward as the law will be given. So we look back at what God has done, and then the law as you live your daily life in the days to come. So it takes in the uh, the past tense and the future tense. So let's uh, take off here in chapter 18, starting at verse 1. It says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay, we, we run into a guy we've seen before. His name is Jethro. And we met him back in a, an earlier chapter, chapter 2. And he's the father-in-law of Moses. And now he appears again after Moses had been down into Egypt and um, all the plagues had gone through and now he's back over in the area where uh, Moses had lived with uh, his wife and and father-in-law there. Uh, This man is the priest of Midian. So it says, And Jethro, and it qualifies who he is, the priest of Midian. So you want to stick that right in your brain because that is very important. And at this moment, I'm not so sure we can say whether he was a priest of Yahweh or not. Uh, As we move through this chapter, I think we will get a clearer view of how Jethro is taking who this Yahweh is, though. There had been another priest in the Bible that we had seen. You remember, the law hasn't been given, so there haven't been priests, have there? We'll see that later on as, as we uh, venture at uh, Mount Sinai. So there are no Levite priests, there's no Israelite priest at all, but there are priests out there amongst the Gentiles. There are priests of many different gods. Is there a priest out there that could be of Yahweh? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, we run into a guy by the name of Melchizedek who is a great picture of Jesus Christ. This guy was real. He existed. And in Genesis 14, verse 17, uh, you have uh, the king of Sodom, and uh, he goes out to meet at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chertorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread... And wine. Now those are elements that, of course, we use in in our communion. He was the priest of El Elyon. Your English Bibles will say God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham did. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, that's Yahweh, then God Most High, which is El Elyon. Yahweh, God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, the creator, the one who owns all this. 
that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. And uh, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre let them take their portion. But there appears Melchizedek. We'll find him in other passages. Hebrews, for instance, and in Psalms. Melchizedek is a king of Salem, or Shalom, or eventually to be known as Jerusalem, Jerusalem, uh, and so this was the area that Abraham and, and Lot uh, were dealing with here. And uh, anyway, Melchizedek comes there and, and brings these elements, and the blessing comes on him. He knew the God Most High. He knew El Elyon. He's not a, in the Jewish family. He's not in the Abrahamic family, because that is yet to come, really. But he's still representing the one true God. And Abram gives his offerings and sacrifices to him, gives a tithe to him. Isn't that interesting? So could there have been priests to the one true God at that time? Yes. And is it possible that Jethro, being a priest of Midian, could have been the priest of the one true God? I just put that question out. I'm not going to answer it. But as we proceed, I think we can get a better answer for something else later, though. Uh, Exodus 2.16 is where we see Jethro and, and uh, priest of Midian and Moses live with him there. Um, he learns much more of Yahweh as Moses tells about this Yahweh, this one true God. He tells him what God had done in Egypt for Moses and for all the Israelites. Now, in chapter 17, we witness the attack of another group of people and they were the Amalekites. They were the enemies. So the enemies come to the camp and you have a battle. Now remember that. Because boom, we go into the next chapter and we see a completely different contrast. We have a man coming in peace desiring to know the things of God and then leading in worship there as a priest would He's a foreigner, but he's a very friendly foreigner. He is a friendly visitor. And that's how we arrive at our title today, a friendly visit. Isn't it nice to have a friendly visit after you've had the enemies come and attack you? Even though they had victory, that was uh, uh, wearing upon them. Jethro... um, is going to get a look at a little bit of history of the the Israelites. Now, the Midianites. He is from Midian. And when you see that come up, it would make you say, "Eh, let's go to my concordance and let's check out Midian. Let's see what they're about. Well, we learned about the Amalekites last week. So, you know, it's it's good to know a little bit of history about them and what they did later to uh, the Israelites. If you turn all the way back to Genesis 25, we can see how they uh, originated. 25 verse 2. Abram took a wife, in verse 1, and her name was Keturah. Now, these are the kids that she had. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian. We'll stop there because I don't know how to pronounce the other ones. Okay, good enough. Midian. We know how to do that one. I think that's right. Midian. So, uh, there's one named in the line of Abraham and Keturah here. Move on to chapter 37, verse 28. This is this time we get the story of Joseph. Joseph has a dream, tells it to his brothers. They get mad, they get jealous. They uh, throw him in a pit and actually make his father and their father believe that he's dead. Along comes a group of people And when we look at 37, what did I say? 28? Then Midianite traders 
passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. So Midianite traders are passing by and and, uh, we have the Ishmaelites uh, named in that same tune there. What do we have here? Uh, We see them playing a part in the story of Joseph which leads into the story of the Israelites. Here they uh, turn Joseph over to the Egyptians. Uh, They get money for that. We go to Numbers chapter 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Now we advance into the story of Balaam. Balak, the leader, sends for the prophet Balaam. Balaam is not uh, from the line of Abraham, but there again, he's a prophet, supposed to speak for God. He's a prophet for hire. We know a little bit of the story of him, but you have Moab, those elders, and then Midian. And so they're playing a part as the Israelites come and um, visit this area. This is in the book of Numbers, so it's still in the Pentateuch. Moses uh, records that here. Um, How about verse 25, same chapter. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. What you have here, that's that story that continues on with the the donkey and and Balaam, the prophet. And you actually had a donkey talking. Okay. But we have these people involved in that again. Um, Numbers 25... Verse 17. Verse 16 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and attack them. There we go. Bring down the tower on them. Go attack them, God says. Harass the Midianites and attack them, for they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague because of Peor. So God tells them to go harass them. You attack the Midianites. Midianites are not friendly to the Israelites. So God, again, He uh, tells the story of that. Judges 6 and 7, we won't tell that whole story. You get into the Old Testament, you get a lot of stories going on and it would take the rest of the, the day to tell that and elaborate on it. But Judges 6 and 7, you have Gideon, and Gideon is going to be one who's going to deliver the Israelites. Gideon is uh, during the time of the judges here. God brings him up, and uh, he plays a key role there with just the 300 soldiers against the thousands and thousands of the enemy. And of course, um, uh, the enemy. Uh, you think of these guys uh, you know, on occasion. There's definite enemies of Israel, and of course, the Midianites are going to be enemies. But here's a priest of Midian who is not an enemy, who is not attacking, who worships God. This time is different, isn't it? Okay, now, a question we want to ask here is, okay, how did Jethro even know what happened in Egypt? He's way over there in the wilderness, outside of Egypt, And it says here in our Exodus 18.1, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Well, he didn't know the details. He didn't have the inside story that Moses had. Who would you want to go to (laughs) and hear the real rest of the story? Moses. That's his son-in-law. He's going to go to him and get the details. He did hear what happened, though. And I know it's during the time that you don't have technology. No radio, no TV, no internet, no Facebook. None of that is happening. But they get the news. News travels quick. It's there. Uh, And so he's heard about it, especially when miracles happen. Boy, there were a lot of miracles that happened over there in Egypt. So he wants to know. 
and there's been messengers, you know, telling where Moses is at, and he's he's supposed to he's going to meet him there. So now we go back to Exodus 18 and pick up verses two through four. Now that was verse one. Okay. And remember, I think we have 27 verses here today. Okay. That first verse is always the one that takes the most time. Isn't that strange? Okay, then Jethro, makes it clear, Moses, father-in-law, took Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Oh, I like this part. I like it all. I like this part because we're there now. <laughs> when did Moses' wife and sons return back home? You know, back where Jethro lived. Her father. Moses' father. When did they go there? Well, we know they went with Moses to Egypt. But when did they go back? Well, tough. I'm not going to give you the answer. Because we don't know. (laughs) We don't. It could have been that they went down there and just before the plagues happened, Moses sent them on back for fear of their lives. That could be legitimate. Although some say that wouldn't make sense because Moses would want them to see what God is going to do through the plagues. So it was after the time of the plagues. And then he sent them back. Or after the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, Calvin presents that they would have been sent away after they had been delivered from Egypt. And, uh, you'll have other ones state it was right after the battle with the Amalekites. I'm not so sure. That, that could have been some length of time. though. They are in that area possibly. That, that still would have been quite uh, a trip, a travel Whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. They went back home for some time and then they come back. That, that's when I say they, who's that? His wife and his two sons. And now they bring back Moses' father in law. So you have a family reunion here. But this is more than a family reunion because God is going to make it very clear. What is going on just by his son's name? Um, the sons are mentioned here, aren't they? One of them is Gershom. The other one is Eliezer. Alright? Significant. And it's explained right in the text. I don't even have to tell you. But I'm going to anyway. <laughs> These names remind us of where Moses and the Israelites have been. Because when Moses first came to the land of the Midianites, he was on the run. He was a foreigner. He's an Israelite, but he came from the land of Egypt. And as he comes into this land, he is a foreigner. And he didn't know anybody. He's a stranger and a foreigner in a foreign land. And that's kind of like the way the Israelites had been. They had been in slavery, even though that was their home in Egypt. They were in slavery there. They really weren't welcome there. Welcome only if they work and work real hard as slaves. So the name of of, uh, Gershom means foreigner. And so Moses has a son, and it means I'm a foreigner here in this land. Then he has another son, and his name is Eliezer, and it means God is my help. I'm a foreigner. I'm an alien. But yet God is my help. That's not too hard to figure out, is it? Here's where I'm at, but look at this. Look at this great God. He's always my help. You know, we're citizens of this country, but yet this is not really our home. And we have another citizenship that's much more important. We're just strangers and aliens. We're pilgrims here in a strange land knowing all at the same time that God is my help. Right? Just take a little spiritual lesson out of that. That's okay. I don't want to take anything out of the text that doesn't mean that. But that's kind of in the sense that we are. But he learned that God was his helper. Boy, did God prove it. 
in every sense of the word, isn't it? God is my helper. Boy, he gives the name Eliza. That's a reminder of the deliverance. The plagues, crossing the Red Sea, giving them food and, and water, and beating the enemy. Huh. This name, Eliezer, is not only good for Moses, but who else is it good for? All of the Israelites. So, now we, we, we move to verse 5 and 6. The story just keeps getting juicier. And Jethro, that's Moses' father-in-law, because at the time when this was written, they knew that Jethro Bodine would be the question. Jethro, no, sorry. I had to bring that up again. Okay. He came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So he gives a messenger, uh, the message, and, and brings it down to Moses. So Moses expects him. He's coming. He's on his way. And so he's heading to, to the mountain of God here. And that's a place where Moses had been before. Go back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Moses knew this area. You remember, he had been a shepherd out in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. He knew this area. He knew about this mountain. And it's, it's called a mountain of God now here. And we see in verse 27 of chapter 4, And the Lord said to Aaron, Now this is Moses' brother. Moses hadn't seen Aaron how long? Forty years. Go into the wilderness. I want you to go out into the desert, way out there, to meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he commanded him. That's when Moses and Aaron got back together. Moses and Aaron are going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. So they had been there before. So God tells him to go there. We're in that area. We're we're real close. We've already seen in chapter 17 that it was in that area. The the rock in Horeb. Now we get the arrival. By the way, um, back in chapter 17, that was the rock in Rephidim. Also, the water came out of that. That great miracle there. This is where Jethro is meeting, all in this area. Now, this area commands our attention because this is where they're really heading to. This is their destination for the, a moment in time that sticks out in the Old Testament. God is going to give the law and the tabernacle there. That's why this place is so important. Now, we get the arrival in verse 7 and 8. It's getting better. It's getting better. Story's moving on. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Now, the message was received by Jethro, by Moses. He acted upon him. and Then he came down there. The meeting between Moses and Jethro should make us recall, like we said before, another time Aaron was there, they recount what God had done and said both times. Moses tells Aaron what God was doing, what he had done, what he had said. Now, Moses meets his father-in-law, tells him what God had done and said. First-hand. First-hand news here. They didn't have the Bible to turn to at that time. But he turns to the one who was going to write this. Who wrote the Pentateuch. And he saw all this. What better man to, to hear. I think, uh, I think the priest got quite a blessing. Getting first-hand news. What a revelation. And you know, we, we turn to this story and we have the blessing of turning and getting all the details that we need. Everything that God saw fit for us to know is right here. We hold it in our hands. We can turn to it every day. The Word of God. That's really what the priest wanted to hear about. Boy, is he going to get it. They start off with a respectful greeting. The leader of two million people here prostrates himself, bows down, 
prostrates himself on the ground before his father-in-law. Now that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Here's the leader of a whole nation and he's bowing down to this man. He's not worshiping him, but he is showing a respect for him and all in the sense that how God put them together. And, and uh, so the respect that he has is showing, welcome here. I'm glad to see you. Matter of fact, he kissed him. And I'm sure today that we have in probably some believers in homosexuality would probably take this and see Moses was that way too. Because he kissed his Aaron. Now he's kissing his father-in-law. See, we know that that was the customs of the time. And it showed great respect. Today, it's a thing that if you were to do, it would be mistaken. People still do it over in the East. No big thing. If we do it here, sad to say, people are going to take that wrong. And um, because of the society we live in. Uh, but it, it it is good that you know people can... You know, some kind times hug themselves, hug each other, of showing of, of your of welcome or respect, or you know, just to give them a touch on the shoulder or something, saying, "Hey, you know, we connect with this." You know, we're in, in the body here. So, what the hospitality uh, is shown by by Moses here uh, tells him to come into the tent. That's most likely Aaron's tent. There could have been some kind of tent that they had that was a a place where they worshipped. But that is to come, the tabernacles. I think it's most likely that's where Moses was staying. And they went right into the heart of the matter. It says here that, um, in verse 7, kissed him, and they asked about their well-being. How you doing? How's it been going? You doing fine? You know, all those things, real quick like, you know, that's all, what we usually do. Hi, you're doing okay, right? Well, it's good to see you. Went in the tent. You know what they immediately went into? What God did. Because in verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. That's what they start talking about. You know, you could get into old times and all the things they used to do way back there. You know, they could they could be talking about, hey, remember how we met? You know, in the well and everything. And those were good stories, and then it happened. But there's something more important here. That's praising Yahweh. You know, they're not talking about the cardinal game. They're not talking about the playoffs. <laughs> Pretty important, but. Nothing compared to praising God, right? Jethro was so interested in what had happened. He was getting to the details. That's what he wanted. Hey, what what went on? How did this happen? Takes it, gets it right from the horse's mouth. Moses couldn't wait to tell him. Can you imagine? Moses is just beaming. It's just going to blow out of his mouth if he doesn't start telling him about this. He doesn't wait. There's no use to wait. Man, when you have the good news, how can you keep it back? Right? So no small talk here. Get to the good stuff. So they starts declaring what God had done. And this is all about God. And it's not what Moses had done. Moses is not getting any glory here. This is all about God. What better thing is there to do than make much of what God is about? Isn't that it? Isn't that the supreme work and blessing of man? To make much of God? You know, we see that a lot. Quite often in the Psalms, we read what God has done and then praise is made out of it. Let's just take a couple of passages. In Psalm 105, verse 2, these are the kind of things that we do because uh, God is great. Now, I said verse 2, but let's read one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Look at this. Make known His deeds among the peoples! Exclamation point. 
Make his work known. Tell about it. Now here, look at this. Verse 2, I love this. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Well, might as well go on. This is free. Glory in his holy name. <laughs> Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. We can just go on and on. It's just telling the whole thing, but for lack of time. You, you see him there, don't you? Remember his marvelous works? Okay, go and tell what he's done. By the way, sing about it. That's why we make much of God in our singing. Have you noticed the lyrics? I know we've done a lot of new songs lately, and I thank you for staying with it, but you'll get familiar. We want to do a lot of songs that tell about His glory and what He's done, who He is. That's really all our songs are about. It's not little diddly songs that we're just doing little praise choruses and saying them over and over. No, there's something there to them. That's why we do a lot of fresh songs. We do hymns. We want to do a lot of songs. That's why we do eight, nine songs sometimes because we want to get hymns in because we never want to lose the hymns. And we also want to get some new songs to keep it fresh because we take a lot of time. We take two hours to worship (laughs) because we want to sing to Him. We want to tell God how great He is as we say it together. Then we want to go to the Word of God. It's all focused on that. Isn't it a privilege to do that? And what better place? Well, anyway, that's Psalm 105, verse 1 and 2 is great. How about Psalm 145? 145 through 150 is about songs, about God and His great majesty. Verse 11 and 12 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. Why? To make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. That is what we do. That is what we love to do. You can't help but doing that. God wanted His fame to be spread all throughout the earth. You are the famous one. I think the NIV uses that word famous where He wants His fame spread. That's why there's that song. You are the famous one. You are to be known amongst all. Moses told not only about God's great power, but His providential care. In all this providence, God was dealing with all the details of each and every Israelite there. How great is our God Sing with me. How great is our God? Right? How great is our God? That would that could be something that's just taken right out of the Psalms. Moses could not have held anything back. Now we get in to what my favorite section is in this chapter. Verses 9 through 12. It's entitled, Worship. I think this is the sunum bonum of this whole chapter. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, look at this, Blessed be the Lord, that's Yahweh, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly He was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And the, and the slight reading through here, when you read through that, you say, well, this is, this is a story, and the father comes down there and says something about God, and they eat. <laughs> Much more than that, isn't there? I mean, this... This is a real highlight in the book of Exodus as far as I'm concerned. I love the worship that's happening here. If you can't tell, I love to worship just like you guys love to worship. Right? This is the response of Jethro. He could not help but worship 
after he heard what God had done. He worships. He even leads in the worship here. And this is the proper response. When you know what God has done, you worship Him. Always. I like the way that verse 9 comes out. Then Jethro rejoiced. (sighs) Oh, the blessings that he poured upon his son-in-law and a whole nation in such miraculous ways. Man, this God, this Yahweh is just awesome. This is amazing. Rejoice. He's rejoicing. He knew what the Israelites had been under. He knew about the Egyptians. That was an empire that oppressed people. That was an empire that was very powerful. He was kind of like neighbors to the Egyptians, only a good way away. And they don't usually mess with us here. These guys are powerful people. Wow, look what God has done. Oppression, brutality, the idolatry. They were defeated. This God is mighty. He's powerful. They have all those gods that they worship and He blew them all away. Amen? Wow. He cares for human beings. He cares for Moses. He cares for His people. This is enough for anyone to rejoice. And He wasn't sad and gloomy about it. He rejoiced. I'm sure a great big smile came across his face all the time that Moses was telling him all these details. He is just wowed by this all. Then we look at at verse 10. Um, Jezebel said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of this. Glory is given to Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord. Glory to this great God. Streams of joy are coming out of him, just like the, the streams of water that were coming out of a rock. Now you have this stream of joy that's coming out of the priest of Midian giving glory to Yahweh. He's the supreme God, he says. He has limitless power, and he's a good God. Now, the gods over there in Egypt, they had a lot of power, wasn't necessarily limitless, and they weren't necessarily good. But this God has all this power and yet He's good. He's full of mercy. I'm sure Moses told on the Israelites (laughs) how they failed. He's a God of grace. He's a God of patience. What a God. Boy, is this fitting? A non-Israelite is giving glory to God. This is absolute true worship. It's based upon the very nature of God and His acts that He has done. And He pours out His heart to Him. Here's a Gentile worshiping Yahweh. And God had told Abraham way back when that all the world will worship Him someday. And there were some chosen Gentiles all throughout the time of the Israelites that God saved. Not in big numbers. But here, I believe, I think it's very obvious. This man finds out who the true Yahweh is. Has this name. And he worships Him. Worshiping in spirit and in truth. He heard the truth from Moses. And we see the spirit of God work through him as he worships him back. That's what God wants. Anything short of truth in a worship is not worship. That's why it's always focused on the Word of God and not anything else. This is why we come here to focus around. It sure isn't to focus around any one person, me or musicians or each person that's worshiping. It's not about me, right? Each one of us should be saying that. To you, God. 
to you alone I give you glory. And that's what He's doing. All the world is blessed by Him. Now, this confession that He has. When you have worship, you have rejoicing. When you have worship, you have glory given to God. That should be one of the extreme things in our mind when we come to worship. It's God and God alone. That's, that's where we want to take each one of us to. That we want to take our minds out of the present tense and go right to this eternal God, right? Verse 11, he gives a confession. And isn't there confession in worship also? Well, he has it here. What an outline for what worship is. Now I know, he makes a confession, a confession of faith, that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, He was above them. Nobody, no gods that can touch this God. No supreme rulers, no false gods, pagan gods. He's above every one of them. Because there's only one God anyway, isn't there? To know that God is Yahweh. God is Lord. That is why God talks. Look in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. The Lord is speaking to Moses, telling him what he's going to do. He says, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You're going to know this without a doubt. It didn't take long for Moses to start learning that lesson. Chapter 7, verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And I know that He is separate from all their gods. He's much more powerful. He's been called Yahweh. Chapter 8, verse 10. So he said, Tomorrow, and he said, Let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The Lord is speaking to Moses. And then you have Pharaoh coming on the scene. And Moses is speaking to Pharaoh. And he says, Tomorrow, you're going to know there's no one like Yahweh. That doesn't mean Pharaoh becomes a believer. But he knows that this God is greater than his God. Chapter 9, verse 29. This is why God is doing this. That people would know. He's revealing Himself. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord Yahweh. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. Why? that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. He owns it. He created it. He is the God. That's whenever He's going to send hail. Wow. That they would know. Now, John 17, Jesus says a great prayer and He says, this is eternal life that they may know Thee. That's eternal life. Knowing God. Knowing Him in a personal way. Not just about Him, but knowing Him. That's what we point each other to. To know God. The Egyptians didn't know God in an intimate way. They didn't know the only God. They had to admit that He was much more powerful than theirs. God demonstrated that to them in no uncertain terms. And He defeated them. But Israel needed to know who God was. They needed to know His grace and His mercy, His love, His power, all those attributes. They needed to know that. That's the main purpose of God that we would know Him. And when we know Him, then we can do our chief end, which is to 
glorify God and enjoy Him because there's rejoicing in that. It's all the same thing. If you're really worshiping God or glorifying God, you are enjoying Him, delighting in Him. Do you delight in God? This morning, right now, right at this very moment, are you just enjoying being in the presence of God? Well, that's what um, Jethro is confessing. They were to know that God knows them and they need to know who He really was. God just kept revealing Himself in many different ways. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, He continued to do that to these people. Well, we've seen rejoicing. We've seen glory given to Yahweh. We've seen a great confession of faith here. And now we see sacrifice in verse 12. You have sacrifice in worship. And I think this is really, even though they don't know the depth of this, but it's based upon the fact there is a sacrifice to come. They're going to see it in pictures, building blocks in the tabernacle, as they worship God that way. But it's pointing to the cross. So we cannot get out of a message without talking about the Messiah to come. Christ dies on the cross for our sins. He gave up His life, a ransom for the many. He paid for the elect's sins. He sacrificed His life. So Jethro gives a picture of this. Like I said, I don't know how much detail they even know about this. There's, there's a lot of revelation to come. But if you're worshiping God, part of it is sacrifice. Sacrificing of ourselves based upon the very sacrifice of Christ. Jethro recognized the worth of God. When we worship, our English word means worship. That means God is worth something to us. He's of value to us. He is of value. He is worth it all. So we, Jethro recognizes the worth of God. He could do no other than the sacrifice. Do a sacrifice to this one true God. This is a sign of absolute full commitment. He took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. This is the priest, the Midian, with these Israelites, and he's teaching them, I think, how to worship. Coming right from his heart. He uh, responds correctly. I believe he was so overjoyed in no uncertain terms of what had happened. He gave glory. He worships Yahweh confesses Him. He said, Lord, as in Yahweh in verse 11, I know, now I know that the Yahweh is greater than all the gods. I think this guy is a believer. (laughs) What do you guys think? He now wants to show His respect and awe and give something of Himself, which God has given them anyway. A burnt offering and, and sacrifice. Turn back to chapter 10, verse 25. Something what we did not too many weeks back. This was dealing with the ninth plague. And Moses is there with Pharaoh. And Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He says, you... Pharaoh, leader of the world, you uh, you give us sacrifices and offerings so that we can go out and sacrifice to Yahweh, our God. Our livestock also should go with us. Remember, Pharaoh said, uh, well, you can go, but you can't take your livestock. Yeah. Uh, not a hoof should be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. They're there. 
It's time to sacrifice. Time to have offerings. This is what begins to happen at this point. We're going to get more detail on how God is to be worshipped in the, in the tabernacle. This is kind of like the, what Peter Inns says in his commentary on this. He says this is the first installment on the importance placed on sacrifice in following chapters. It's a prelude to what is to come. This is significant. And especially today, as we commemorate and celebrate the Lord's Supper coming up. I'd probably better get this thing turned on a little quicker, hadn't I? Alright, how are we going to do that? Well, they have bread and they have communion here. They came to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now what is this bread? Could have been something Jethro brought as baked bread or whatever. Or it probably could be that manna that's being provided. Whatever it is, there's a communion of the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron and the priest of Midian. The bread is most likely this heavenly manna, we'll say. And they take part in this spiritual moment in fellowshipping with each other and worshiping God. This kind of fellowship anticipates the time of the Messiah who would die for the sins of the people and make redemption. To worship God is to worship Yahweh. When he said in 11, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. In verse 12, some people make a big deal of this and they say, well, other, he's going to offer offering uh, other sacrifices to God. Elohim. And he doesn't use the personal name of God there. Well, he already did. In verse 11, how long was Just like a couple of seconds before that. So I really have a problem with him saying he doesn't know Yahweh because he's just mentioned him. He says that Yahweh is God. God is Yahweh. To worship God is to worship Yahweh. And he's recognized him as Yahweh. He calls him Elohim. This priest knew what to do. This was a festive meal to the praise of God as they gather together in fellowship. At the same time, God is being glorified out of it. Four real quick points out of this. And I got this off the internet on my Facebook by um, a pastor um, by the name of Ryan Hyder. And um, I asked for permission on that. I don't know if I got an answer or not. But I said, hey, is it okay if I uh, use these four points? And I said, I'll be putting in my message and I'll give you credit. So, <laughs> anyway, if Ryan were to hear this uh, eventually on CD or something, he'll know that uh, I'm giving him credit because I thought it was really good. He says, first of all, God is the initiator of worship. That means He starts it. We don't start it. Yeah, we come here, but He's the one that starts it. He initiates it. Every aspect of our lives. God is the first mover. Go all the way back. God initiated creation of the world, right? He started that. God initiated the nation of Israel. God initiated the plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. God initiated our personal salvation in that He elected us. God will initiate the end of the age through the coming of Christ. This is the pattern of everything. God initiates. God starts it all and we want to reflect that as we come in our gatherings. That's why we focus around the Word of God. He starts it. Worship is a response to who He is. Number three, worship is based on the very character of God. Who He is. All those attributes. God is a specific God. We don't worship an idol. We worship the true God because we look at His Word and we see the character of God as nature. So we worship Him because He reveals Himself to us through this and through the Spirit of God. And the chief point is that we cannot worship apart from the work of Christ. That's the focus. They looked to the Messiah and His coming. We look back at the cross and see that our worship is based on that. Now, we're going to cover the next 15 verses real quickly. And I'll comment as we read because this is very explanatory because I spent so much time on the first verse. You get cheated on the next section. But I want to spend time on worship. 
here's what happens after worship. We have to go to our daily activities. And Moses goes to his daily activities and does his judging. He judges people. All two million people. On every little thing. Every little nonsensical thing. It shouldn't even be t- it's taking up his time. And so it was, verse 13, on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. That's what Moses did. There's his work. Why? So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? What are you doing that for? So Moses comes back and replies this. Moses is arbitrating you know, the legal issues between the parties. You know, Somebody's got to do it. He took all the cases. Moses is dead tired at the end of the day. He couldn't keep this pace up all throughout their days of this. Moses is in over his head. He can't do it. He can't go on for this forever. So he had to focus on the main thing. The main thing is communicating the covenant of God to the people. That's what he's going to do. This is looking to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. It's like the priest here is sent by God to him to worship with them and to learn about God even more, but then to say, hey, uh, it's almost like God was speaking through him. Uh, here's what you've you got to do. And Moses explained, verse 15, Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me and inquire of God, when they have a difficult, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God. And he said, well, that's what I'm doing. And Moses is going to get a warning here now, 17 and 18. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. That's good enough, isn't it? It's not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Jethro tells him you're going to wear yourself out. This is not a good thing. Now he starts giving him counsel. He says in 19, listen. Listen to him out my voice. I will give you counsel. God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws... That's one thing. And show them the way in which they must walk and work. They must do. How they should live it. He's, he's the, the people's representative before God. He was to have superiority over choosing helpers here. He's to teach the law. He was to warn them and admonish them. Uh, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men. Men who can lead. Who can be judges here such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Breaks it on all the way down where they can do that job and that is, all that activity is taken from Moses. We see that in Acts 6 where uh, uh, the deacons are selected because it was getting too much for the apostles because they were to spend their time in the Word and in prayer. Moses is to be doing that and then teaching the, the, the law and how they're to live it. So uh, let them be judged, the people at all times. It will be that every great manner they shall break, bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you. They will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, if God is saying this, then you'll be able to endure and all those people will also go to their place in peace. That's pretty godly wisdom, isn't it? Moses says, No. No, that's, that's the way I like it. That's what I want to do. No. Moses did not hesitate. Moses, verse 24, heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. He listened to his father-in-law, put that plan into operation, and it worked well. Jethro's advice is what God would have commanded. Moses could not have physically done that. Uh, Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads of the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. So he only had the ones that were very, very difficult, brought them to the Supreme Court, and he dealt with it there. (laughs) He's just following God's orders. and God used a human instrument, that's Jethro, to speak to him. And if we were to look in Deuteronomy 1, not enough time, verses 9 through 18, we see that how that is recorded in there and what Moses did. Verse 27, Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went his way to his own land. Jethro then got up, 
whenever the time was right, after worshiping, giving counsel to Moses, all that time, he left for home. He was an important visitor. Boy, did they need that. Boy, did Moses need that. The elders need that. He offered them worship, giving Moses very valuable wisdom, and now he prepared them to receive the law at Mount Sinai. For that's next on the agenda. So this is about looking ahead. Verses 13 and 27 is about looking ahead at what they're going to do. First 12 verses were looking back at what God had done. When we reflect on what God has done, we cannot keep from praising God. Then, He expects us what? To carry out His work. And so did Moses on his everyday work. What He's given us, we can do it. It starts with worship, though, as we go about our daily lives. Pray for a moment and we'll get ready for our communion. Lord, we thank You so much for who You are, what You've done. You've displayed Your great majesty all throughout Exodus. And may we take an example from this priest of Midian, Jethro, in worshiping You. And uh, that is how we express our love for You. In Jesus' name, Amen.